Well, we're finishing up today our study in the book of 2 Peter, and um, it's a challenging passage, so I need prayer, so I'm going to pray for myself, okay? (laughs) Father, through your Holy Spirit, help me now to uh, rightly divide the word of truth. And Lord, uh, take this challenging passage and apply it to each person's heart and life as you do, and you do it so well. So we trust you with that in Jesus' name. Amen. And uh, you'll probably want to have your, your Bible uh, or your, the Word of God on your device out so you can be following along there as well as the study guide that's in your worship folder. You know, when you're working with someone to uh, help them grow spiritually in their life, sometimes what's called for is not covering new ground, but reminding them of things that they already know. I have this little phrase I often find myself saying to people that I'm working with. I know you know this. (laughs) I know you know this, but could I share something with you that uh, you've probably already learned in your life? Something that you might need to hear again? I know you know this, but your marriage is more important than your job. I know you know this, but your kids need to see you prioritizing your walk with Christ. I know you know this, I said this to a guy yesterday, I know you know this, but it's not all about you. Being selfish always ruins things. Many times I've said that to a guy and he'll look at me and say, you know, you're right. I did already know that, but somewhere along the line I lost sight of it. I needed to be reminded, so thank you. Sometimes it's very practical stuff that somebody needs to be reminded of. Other times it's, it's doctrinal stuff, it's beliefs, it's gospel truths. I know you know this, but your primary identity is not in who others think you are, it's in who God says you are. I know you probably know this, but Christ already took all of God's wrath for your sins. So what's happening to you right now is not the punishment of God. I know you know this, but uh, this life is not all there is. There's an eternity coming, and it lasts a long, long time. I would actually say that a good portion of mentoring someone or discipling someone is just reminding them of truth, in many cases, truth that they already knew, but had forgotten or lost sight of somewhere along the way. And that is actually the, the first point of the sermon today. We'll get out ahead of this a little bit. Point number one, some people need to be constantly reminded of things that they already know. And this is what the Apostle Peter was doing with some people that he was working with back in the first century. Several times in this letter of 2 Peter that we've been studying and that we're we're wrapping up today, several times Peter basically says, I know you know this, but let me remind you of something. Like right here at the beginning of chapter 3, he opens the chapter this way. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of, what? Reminder. I'm going to remind you of something here. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. In other words... I'm writing this letter to remind you of some things that you've heard before, but because of the present circumstances, because of what's going on right now, 
I feel the need to bring them up to your attention again for your good. And he says to stir you up. And you might ask, well, what things? What things is he reminding them of? And he says it's, it's things that the Old Testament prophets foretold, things that Jesus himself said, things that Christ's apostles taught. Things like Jesus is going to come back one day. And when he does, he's going to establish an eternal kingdom. And his kingdom is going to be a righteous government, praise God. Where holy living is going to be rewarded and wickedness is going to be judged. And things like this. Live your life, Christian person. Live your life as if Jesus Christ could come back at any time. Because he could. As we've noted, these particular reminders were important then and they continue to be important today because number two, there are some people who cast doubt on the second coming of Jesus Christ and on the future judgment that will follow. And that was true back then and it's true in our day, isn't it? I mean, how many people in our city do you think truly believe in their hearts that Jesus Christ is going to split the heavens and come back to earth one day? I mean, what percentage of our population do you think believes that? 20%? 10? 5? 1%? Surely it's a tiny minority of people. Many people would scoff at that idea, don't you think? Seriously? Jesus is going to come back? I think Peter was being prophetic when he wrote in verse 3, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. That's what scoffers do. They scoff. <laughs> Following their own sinful desires, they will say, and there's kind of a sneer here, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, that's a ridiculous notion, Jesus coming back. Notice he says, scoffers will come in the last days. And we need to understand that that term, the last days, is a technical term in the Bible that's used to describe that interval of time that began with Christ's first coming and extends all the way through to the time of his second coming. So that period of time, that interval in the Bible is referred to as the last days. So the last days have lasted how long? At least 2,000 years, right? We're living in the last days, maybe the last of the last days. And so, that being the case, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe we can understand a little bit why some people might mock our belief that Jesus is going to come back. After all, that prediction was made centuries ago, and he still hasn't appeared. And it's also true, many of those early Christians back in the first century believed that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. Many of them believed that when he said, I will come again, that, that, that he was going to be right back. But he didn't. Yes, yeah, some would say he did come in judgment in 70 AD, so he did come in that sense to judge Israel for their unbelief, but he didn't come in the the personal and visible way that he himself had promised and that others had promised. And so down through the centuries, there have always been people who have said, well, Jesus promised to come back, huh? Where is he? <laughs> Why hasn't he shown up? Some of those people have been doubters, sincere doubters with real legitimate questions, but others have been scoffers. And there's a difference between doubters and scoffers. 
Scoffers have a disdain for the Bible. Scoffers have a ridicule for Christians. They don't respect our beliefs. You know anybody like that? It's the scoffers that Peter is, has in view here. He notes several things about them. He, he notes first their sarcastic challenge. There's sarcasm dripping from these words. Where is the promise of his coming? So Jesus promised to come back, huh? Well, where is he? Did he forget? Uh, maybe he got busy. Maybe he's stranded on the side of the road somewhere on that highway to heaven with a flat tire. Maybe he got hung up somewhere. And so these guys are not just doubters with sincere questions. They're mockers. They're making fun of us. And then Peter notes their sinful motivation. He says, following their own sinful desires. And so if we could get inside the heads of these, these scoffers, these mockers, we, we would find thoughts like these. We make our own rules. Uh, we're not accountable to anybody but ourselves. We do what we want, when we want, with whomever we want, without any fear of some supposed judgment that's going to come someday when this Jesus returns. Forget that. That's nothing but a myth driven by selfish lusts. And then, interestingly, he, he reveals their, their, the philosophy, their rationale behind their belief. He says, he kind of quotes them, Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, that is a worldview that he's revealing here. That's a way of seeing history. And there are some labels that have been attached to that worldview. It's called immutable uniformity. Look it up. It's called historical continuity. Look that up. Basically says this. Look, history has always progressed in linear fashion ever since the beginning of time without any intervening activity from God. It's a closed system. There is nothing um, impacting it from the outside. I mean, if, if God even exists, maybe he got it started, but... If so, he apparently decided after that to stand apart from it. He's not involved in the goings-on of his creation. And so this worldview would contend there is no such thing as providence. There is no such thing as divine intervention in this world, and there never has been. And so that's a particular set of lenses. That's a worldview, and that's what Peter and these first century Christians were up against. And... Uh, I would say that kind of worldview is still present in our day, don't you think? It's kind of a deistic worldview. If the creator, if he exists, kind of wound up the clock of creation and let it go, and then he's, he's not involved. Many people hold that view. But here's what Peter is going to say in rebuttal. Uh, aren't you overlooking something? And it's true, number three, there are some people who conveniently overlook how God has indeed intervened in the world in times past, in history. Verse 5, For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. What's Peter saying? Two things, I believe. First, 
Hey, Mr. Scoffer, Mrs. Scoffer, think about it. The world came into its very existence through divine intervention. God used his word, his spoken word, and he used water to do it. We'll look at that in a moment. And second, God then judged his created world through divine intervention again. And again, by his word and by water. You're saying that God has never intervened in this world. What about the flood in Noah's day? If that wasn't God intervening, I don't know what is. That's what Peter's saying. And so we hear that. And where do we learn about these particular divine interventions? Well, we learn about them back in the very first book of the Bible, right? In the book of Genesis. Remember back in Genesis 1 and verse 2, it says that the Spirit of God, it's a creation story, the Spirit of God hovered above the waters, which apparently God had already created, and that God then spoke and he separated those waters, right? Creating a watery, misty canopy above and an ocean below, and then he parted those ocean waters and caused land to emerge, Land that could be populated by living creatures, by animals, and eventually human beings whom he would create. So God brought the world into existence, do you see this? By his word and using H2O. Then a few chapters later in Genesis 6, we're told that God spoke again and he opened the floodgates. I was preaching this last night at about 6.30 and it was, it was like a second coming of the flood, you know? <laughs> It's like he's doing it again, <laughs> pouring down. Well, that's what he did in the flood. He opened the floodgates above and below, right? Pouring down from above, the springs within the earth erupting, springing up and covering the earth with water. And God, it says, judged the earth with a worldwide flood, destroying all but eight people. And the evidence of that cataclysmic event can still be seen today. Did you know that seashells have been found on mountaintops? A person came to me last night and says, I have one. <laughs> a seashell that was found, you know, thousands of feet above sea level on top of a mountain. Did you know that the fossil record is best accounted for by the occurrence of a sudden cataclysmic flood? Did you know that the Grand Canyon, if you've ever been there, contains massive evidence of an unprecedented water event and upheaval like a major flood. I'm going to post an article on our website this week if you're interested in this sort of thing. Geological evidence for an ancient worldwide flood. Very interesting. But my point is that uh, evidence of this event still exists today. And God did it. God orchestrated that. God caused the flood. Don't miss that, Peter is saying. And those who teach that Jesus is not coming back because there's no evidence that God has ever intervened in human history, well, they're deliberately overlooking this truth. That's what he's saying. And I think the reality of the flood should sober all of us up, don't you think? To realize that God has intervened in this world, and he can intervene in this world. He's judged it before, and he can do it again. And so, number four, some people... Not everyone, but some people ought to be completely terrified of God's impending judgment when Christ does return. 
Verse 7. But by the same word, that's the word of God, the spoken word of God. God speaks and it happens. By that same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept or reserved until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. I told you this was tough stuff here today, and it is. Two ideas here. The same word of God that created the world will one day, what? Destroy it. And second, just like the flood in Noah's day, the final judgment of this world will also be an unprecedented, destructive event of massive proportions. But unlike the flood, it will not be with water, it will be with fire. Someone might hear that and say, that is terrifying. And it should be. Not to everyone, but to some. And I don't think we're we're supposed to try and soften this, you know. (laughs) Because it's what Peter believed. As well as the other apostles, as well as Jesus, it's all over the Word of God, Old Testament and New Testament. Let me give you several examples of this. The ultimate destruction of the world by fire. Isaiah 66 from the Old Testament Verse 15, see the Lord is coming with fire and his chariots, chariots of fire, are like a whirlwind and he will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire for with fire and with his sword the Lord will execute judgment upon all men and many will be those slain by the Lord. That's pretty terrifying. Here's Jesus himself. Sweet Jesus, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. Whoa. Paul wrote this in 2 Thessalonians 1. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire. With his powerful angels, he will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who should be terrified at this. And then how about Revelation? I mean, I could have picked any number of verses from Revelation, but this is chapter 8 and verse 7. The first angel blew his trumpet, the trumpet judgments, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. We don't even know what that is. And these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was what? Burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. And there are people who read scriptures like that and say, well, well, fire is just a metaphor here, right? I mean, this is just figurative. Of course, it's not talking about real, literal fire burning things up. And perhaps that's true. Theologians do debate this. But in defense of a literal interpretation here in Peter's writings is the fact that we read all throughout this passage, Peter very much has the physical universe in mind in this passage, the literal elements of our physical planet. I mean, it was literal H2O that flooded the literal earth, right? A few verses later, he says, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. And the, 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 the original for heavenly bodies there is, it's not the greatest translation, it's the word elements, it's the physical elements of the earth. The building blocks, the basic elements of the earth will melt as they burn. Some things in the Bible are figurative. Some things are metaphors. But when it comes to this, the ultimate consummate judgment of the earth, I'm a literalist. 
I still believe, as we used to say back in Bible college days, it's all going to burn up one day. (laughs) A lot of what we think is really important here in terms of material possessions is one day all going to go up in smoke. That puts things in perspective, doesn't it? And by the way, Peter says here that God is going to do this by his word. This is not human beings ushering in Armageddon with a nuclear holocaust. I mean, I guess that could happen, but that's not what this is talking about. This is God summoning the elements that he himself created to now go and do his will. And the next time we can be sure it won't be with water because we know from Genesis chapter 9 that every time we see a rainbow in the sky, it signifies God's pledge that he will never again judge the entire world with a flood. I'm not sure the ungodly should be put at ease by that, though. I mean, fire melts things. So This ultimate melting or dissolving of the universe by fire was predicted in the Old Testament, confirmed in the New Testament, as we saw. Right here, Peter affirms it several times. And when that happens, it's going to make way for the creation of something that we long for, the new heavens and the new earth. The promised renewal of all things. Which is good news, right? So listen, Jesus is going to come back one day, and inherent in that is his pledge when he comes to judge the ungodly and the wicked and those who reject the gospel, and to judge the world itself, which is groaning under the curse of sin, Romans 8 tells us. And the outcome is going to be that God's people will be rescued from all that and will dwell together with the Lord in a stunning, beautiful new creation called the new heavens and the new earth. You with me so far? Let me just review up to this point. Some people need to be constantly reminded of things they already know, right? Some people cast doubt on the second coming of Christ and the future judgment. Some people conveniently overlook how God has indeed intervened in the world in times past. Some people ought to be completely terrified of God's impending judgment when Christ does return. Point number five, some people clearly misinterpret God's intent in delaying Christ's return for so long. They're mistaken about it. Verse 8, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. So the scoffers are overlooking something, and now he turns his attention to his beloved, the, the folks. And says, do not overlook this, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. Like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And again, that original word there is like a crackling roar of a fire. 
And the heavenly bodies, or the elements, better translated, will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So he says, look, don't make the mistake that some people do. Some people think that God views time like we view time. And he doesn't. God actually exists outside of time. And that's hard for our little brains to comprehend, right? Because we live in time. We've only ever lived in time. Now, there are some movies and TV series that have maybe opened this thought of a new dimension up to us, but we, don't, we haven't experienced it personally. God, Peter is saying, doesn't reckon time like we reckon time. He doesn't experience events in a succession one after the other like we do, like in a parade, right? This comes, and then this happens, and then this comes, and this happens. That's how we experience life. But God lives in the eternal present and somehow experiences it all simultaneously. We can't understand that. But because of that, God's activity is never late. It's never delayed. It may seem like that to us in our limited view down here. I mean, how many of you have come to understand that God's timetable is not quite like yours? Yeah. Interesting. He gives us a peek into God's heart, doesn't he? He talks about God's motive. What is God's motive for holding back Christ's return, keeping his son in heaven? It's not laziness. It's not disinterest. It's not that he got stranded by the side of the road. It's not that he forgot. Oh, that's right. I was supposed to send my son. You know, none of that. It's what? Patience. Aren't you glad God is patient? He's holding Christ back in heaven to give more people more time to repent and be saved. And come into the family of God. He's delaying judgment for the sake of humanity. To give time for people from every age and every century and every generation to repent of their sins and trust in the sacrifice of Christ and be born again. But one day, his patience is going to run out. Even God's patience runs out. The opportunity to repent will be over. I mean, it says he is not willing that any should perish. And that is true. But you know what? Many will perish. Many will perish because they refuse to repent within the allotted time. But not us. Not God's chosen people. Not those who do come to Jesus in repentance and faith before they die or before the return of Christ, not one of them will be lost. Didn't Jesus himself say that? All that the Father has given me will come to me and I will not lose a single one. Love that. Such good news. So listen, on a day yet to come, future to the first century believers that Peter is writing to, future to us, a day that no one but the Father himself knows. Not even the Son, Jesus said. I don't even know when I'm coming back. 
when his timetable calls for it, he's going to lean over to his son and say, now. Now's the time. Go get my children. (laughs) It's time. And the Lord Jesus will come back suddenly, surprisingly to most people, like when a thief breaks in unexpectedly in the middle of the night. That's the metaphor he uses here, like a thief, meaning a surprise, wasn't expecting it. But unlike a thief, Jesus will come to protect his people and preserve them not take anything from them. And the brightness of his coming is going to reveal the true nature of everything and he will commence to judge the world accordingly because everything is going to be laid bare and exposed and that judgment will be devastating. And so, this being the case, this being the teaching of God's word, I would be remiss as a pastor to not ask at this point, are you ready for that day? He could come at any time. Are you prepared? Are you prepared for his coming? You see, the prospect of Christ's imminent return, which means he could come at any time, doesn't have to be terrifying to people. It doesn't have to be terrifying to you. You can be ready for it. You could actually be looking forward to it and anticipating his coming. How? Well, Peter tells us, right? By repenting. He's patient towards you, giving time to repent. The word repent means to turn from your sin, turn from your self-sovereignty, turn to Christ Put your full trust in his finished work on the cross for you and the empty tomb, paying for all of your transgressions and sins, rising so that he could justify you before God when you put your faith in him. That's how to be prepared. That's how to be ready for his coming. Well, here's his final point, Peter's final point here. Perhaps you knew this already. That's okay, right? Maybe you could stand to be reminded of what you already know. Point number six, some people understand this. They understand that the end of the age will signal the end of great opportunity in this life. And so knowing that, they consciously commit to living their lives in light of the Lord's imminent return for the remainder of their days. Verse 11, since all of these things are thus to be dissolved by fire, what sort of people ought you to be? Don't you love how Peter goes from doctrinal truth to how you live your life and how I live my life? He goes from end times eschatology to my conduct today. Since this is all going to happen, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness? And godliness, waiting for and hastening, that's interesting, the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, verse 14, since you are waiting for these, be diligent, make every effort, 
to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them in these matters. I think it's interesting that now we got Peter talking about Paul, right? I love these two guys, you know, bantering back and forth. They had their moments, right? Where they bucked heads. But here's Peter holding up Paul's writings as scripture, actually. Kind of a parenthetical statement here. There are some things in them, talking about Paul's writings, that are hard to understand. Yeah, no kidding. Like Romans 9 and 10 and 11 and other writings of Paul. Peter's like, some things that our brother Paul writes are really hard to understand. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So two things here. He's calling Paul's writing scripture. Did you notice that? Paul was a contemporary of Peter. And he says, there are Bible twisters. There are manglers of the word of God. And that's been in his crawl all along in this letter, right? People who twist the scriptures to their own ends. It's not that they don't ever talk about the Bible. They do, but they twist them for their own selfish purposes. Peter's got an issue with that. He's trying to warn believers to to watch out for that. So verse 17, you therefore, beloved, people whom I love, knowing this beforehand, in other words, knowing that there are Bible twisters out there, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. And then this final verse kind of reaches a crescendo here in this letter as he finishes it out. But grow, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Love and kisses, Peter. Isn't this awesome? Say, Pastor Steve, I want to do that. I want to consciously commit to living out my remaining days in light of the Lord's soon return. How do I do that? What would that look like? And I see here in his final words, Peter getting very pastoral. Don't you feel this? It's like he's leaning in now to these people whom he loves, talking very earnestly to them. And with great sincerity, he puts forth five challenges to God's people living in light of the Lord's return. And I want to share them with you because they apply to us today as well. Because frankly, we're closer to Christ's return than those guys were. (laughs) It's never been closer than right now. Five challenges. How do I live in light of the Lord's imminent return? Number one, godly living. Godly living. Man, this comes over and over again. Because Jesus is coming back soon, because you're going to lock eyes with the second person of the Holy Trinity, strive with everything you've got to live a life that reflects Him and His character, right? A godly life. Seek to emulate Jesus in every way possible to be salt and light in this world. And we we often talk about being the hands and feet of Jesus here in this world while we're here. And that's what this is talking about. And I'm telling you, when he does come and when you first meet Jesus face to face, you will be so glad that you left it all on the field for him here in this life. You'll be so glad. You won't be ashamed. I hope and pray that for all of us. Second challenge, eager anticipation. 
eager anticipation. What does that mean? Well, it means looking forward with great hope, right? And eagerness to to see Jesus face to face. You know, we turn on the news or go online and get our news. It seems like every day there's more disasters and things going on and shootings and North Korea. You never know what's going to happen over there, right? And, and, And it would be easy to get despondent. It would be easy to let all that negativity just overwhelm you. And, and Peter's saying, no, no, we who know the Lord, we know how the story ends. We know that Christ is coming for us. We long for that day. Let that govern your outlook and your mood and your perspective. And I agree. Live in light of the Lord's return and let that be a positive thing for you. The thought of being with Jesus forever. The third challenge that Peter gives his readers and us, is the challenge of purity and peace. Purity and peace. And you remember him talking in there about being, in light of Jesus coming, being free from spot or blemish, and the idea is being contaminated by the world, or being stained. Keep yourself unstained, James writes, unspotted from this world. And there is a sense where we're supposed to be swimming upstream. Right? Fools for Christ's sake, Paul would call himself. Will you be a fool for Jesus? Will you allow co-workers or scoffing type people to view you as an idiot for Christ and be okay with that because your identity is not grounded in what people think of you but what God says of you? Purity and peace, harmony, you know, harmony, not all, not bickering and fighting all the time with people over stupid stuff. How many of you do that, bicker and fight over stupid stuff? I do. You know, and it's like, it's in the aftermath that it dawns on you, right? That was stupid. (laughs) It wasn't really worth fighting over. Come on. Striving for purity and peace because Jesus is coming soon. And we want to be found in that moment at peace with each other and pure in heart. Challenge number four, this is undergirding everything in here, evangelistic zeal. Jesus is coming soon, right? The opportunity to repent is going to end, and so seize opportunities to bring that message of salvation to people who don't yet know the Lord while there is still time. I had a gal in our church write me a letter, an email this week, talking about a year ago she started praying for three people to come to know Jesus and she shared that two of them have come to know Jesus within the past year. Love that. And interesting, Peter has this little phrase he throws in there, hastening the day of his coming. That's interesting. Speeding it up? That, that could mean either causing it to seem like it comes more quickly in our way of reckoning things, or in God's plan, is the date not like set? We can speed it up by evangelizing and that last member of the family of God, of the body of Christ, comes to faith and it's time. Boom! (laughs) Speeding up God's timetable by our holy living and our evangelistic zeal as we declare his gospel and live out its implications in our world. And then fifth, the challenge of being discerning and of developing our faith or growing our faith. 
Remaining stable in the faith by recognizing false teachers and resisting their influence. Those who would seek to carry us away with fine-sounding speaking, as Brett detailed out for us last week. Resisting that, saying, no, 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 no. I'm not going to just be swept along by every new current that comes along. I'm going to swim upstream. I'm going to intentionally develop and grow my faith, growing in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. This, this means not being gullible. Just because you hear some teacher who sounds great and is kind of slick and dynamic and magnetic doesn't mean they're rightly handling the Word of God. They might be a Bible twister, as Peter warned us. Being discerning, developing our senses in that regard, and then conversely growing in our knowledge of Jesus Christ through His Word, through gathering with His people, through sharpening each other, through maturing in our faith. I wonder if any of these five challenges resonates with you today. I wonder if you sense the Spirit of God through the Word of God calling you to accept these challenges for living in light of the Lord's return. And beyond that, I wonder if there are any of these challenges that the Lord might be urging you to remind somebody else about. Remember we talked about that? There's someone in your life that you you need to say, you know, I I know you know this, (laughs) but could I just remind you of something that I think you might need to hear? Jesus calls us to a holy life. A holy life. Listen, that's the book of 2 Peter, quite a book. I wonder from what we learned today, if God had something for you, kind of customized for you in this message today. I'd like to know that. Would you raise your hand if you learned something today, or if there's something in there that you felt like was for you? Anybody? Okay, good, a good number of you. Let me pray for you that God will seal that in your hearts and in mine as well. Lord God, thank you for the word of God. Some of it is milk and honey that's sweet. Some of it's meat. We have to chew it and digest it. And Lord, uh, Second Peter to me, I think, has been meat for a lot of us. Lord, I pray you would grant us the ability to digest it well, the ability to rightly divide the word of truth. Lord, give your people here your beloved people, discernment in terms of who they're listening to, who they're allowing to influence their thinking and their worldview and their life. And Lord, may we all accept the challenge to grow, to not be complacent, not be lethargic, not be content with where we are spiritually, but to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For his glory, I pray. Amen. Amen.